This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Hebrews chapter 11, and hold your place there and also find Exodus chapter 1. For our guests, we are in a series uh, going through Hebrews chapter 11 this summer, going verse by verse and story by story through this great, great passage of Scripture that we know is the Hall of Faith. Uh, we all make choices in life, don't we? Everybody makes choices. And, and you made some choices even already this morning before you got here. You made some choices, and, and, and most of the choices I'm sure that you made probably were inconsequential. For example... It didn't really matter. It's not a life-changing thing that I chose to uh, reach out and grab Gail's toothbrush this morning and brush my teeth with it, all right? That's not a... By the way, I know, I'm sorry, but Kit says she's got a new toothbrush for you, okay? So, you know, those kind of choices that we make, and and you all laugh, and don't tell me none of you have ever done that before. You know, the last gathering, nobody said they'd done that before, and I'm thinking either they're a bunch of liars or I'm really in trouble, one of the two, Um, because it's not the first time I've done that. Now, um, you know, I had... had, um, I had breakfast this morning, and, and I sat down, and, I, and the waitress came up to me in the restaurant, so what would you like for breakfast? It wasn't a life-shattering choice that I made to have the eggs and, and things that I had with that this morning. That, now, if I had said, bring me, bring me three dozen eggs, and, and that might have been life-changing, but for what I had this morning, it wasn't. When I mowed the grass the other day, it wasn't a life-changing decision to decide whether do I mow the front yard or the backyard first. Who cares? You know, those kind of choices that we make really don't matter. But there are choices that, especially things that regard faith, that are not of uh, so much of preference but of, of necessity, and there are times in our lives when we are faced with hard, difficult choices that the reality is if I make the wrong choice, it may impact the rest of my life in a negative way. If I make the right choice, it may impact my life in a positive way. And so there are really difficult choices that might require our faith. And some of those areas in our lives where we all make choices would be, for example, in, in our relationships. Uh, maybe uh, your marriage might be going through a hard time. Now, if, if you're married today, um, you, you know that there are times, if you've ever been married, you know there are times in your life when your marriage goes, goes through hard times. Is that true? Everybody who's ever experienced marriage knows that's correct. And maybe my marriage is going through a difficult time and I might have a difficult choice as to what I do next. My career might pose difficult decisions for me because my boss may see me tomorrow morning, may come in and he says, hey, I've got some good news. I'm giving you a promotion. You're going to get a raise. You're going to get greater responsibility. You've worked hard, but you've got to move to another state to take this job. And I think, well, I've got to leave my church. I've got to leave my friends, my neighbors. I've got to uproot my children from their friends and their school. (laughs) To a lot of parents, they think, I just can't do it because I would never uproot my children. Like, that's the worst thing you could do to your kids. Um, Let me tell you, it's not. Uh, from somebody who went to two elementary schools, three middle schools, and three high schools. Um, and look how I turned out, all right? So that I may have just blown my argument there, but you, know, you may have a difficult choice to make. God, what do we do? My friends, 
my friends may want me to join them in something that I really don't believe is going to please God, but they're putting the pressure on to do that. Um, my, my morals and my, my ethics may pose difficult choices in my life. Do I, do I end this pregnancy or do I keep a baby that everybody tells me I can't afford? Finances. How can I afford to give to the Lord when things are so, so tight? And none of those are easy choices, especially, Christian, especially if we don't put faith in the equation. Then they become really hard, hard choices. And all of those can be life-changing in either positive or negative ways. Um, after years and years and years of ministry and pastoring, uh, my greatest heartbreak, I would have to tell you, is, is to watch Christians make wrong choices that wind up hurting them and usually hurting other people near to them, choices that usually ignore faith and ignore biblical counsel, and that's so hard to watch. Well, today we have some faith heroes, again, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and they all had tough choices to make. Their stories remind me of this truth. Living for the Lord, doing what pleases Him, even if it means defying human law and, and, and having to follow Christ, sometimes will require you and I to take risks. Take risks. Hebrews 11.23 says this, By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Now, if you say, what's that, what is that about? We're going to go back to Exodus and tell the story and look at how faith was involved here. After 400 years of servitude in Egypt, the people of God had been really beaten down. Uh, they had over 400 years, however many generations that is, 10 or so generations probably, they had for the very most part forgotten God. They grew up not even knowing who their God was. So God, to get them back to the promised land, had to take had to choose a leader to take them there. And who am I going to choose? Well, he chooses a man by the name of Moses. But what I want us, one of the things that we need to see here this morning is that Moses, the accomplishments that he did leading them to the promised land, and maybe you know the story, maybe you've seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or whatever it might be, the different movies they've made about the story. He did not do this alone. His parents took great risks because of their faith to give him life. And the first point in, in, our, in your notes this morning simply says this, heroic faith is strengthened in community. Strengthened in community. Now, here's how the Bible teaches us that in this story. Sometime before Moses' birth, Pharaoh who was Egypt's king, issued a decree. Here in our country, in the United States, we don't have a king, but we do have a president who's a leader. And sometimes the president issues what we call executive orders. He really doesn't get anybody's permission in the government. He just says, I think we need to do this. And he gets his pen out and writes this order, and it becomes law somehow. The kings of Egypt were the absolute, the pharaohs were the absolute law in their country. And he makes this decree that the male children of the Hebrews should be put to death. He said, kill the baby boys that are born to the Hebrews. Why? 
Well, the answer is given to us in the scripture that the Hebrew people were growing large in population. They had been there now for 400 years. Just, and they started with 12 families. Now that it's huge and, and massive, growing larger in population, and Pharaoh viewed them as a potential threat. He wasn't so concerned about diluting the labor force they provided because they were in servitude. He wasn't so concerned about, well, if we kill all the baby Hebrew boys, then in the future generations, we won't have anybody to do all this work. That was not his concern. He was concerned about the possibility of an insurrection, of a revolution, a rebellion to overthrow him and his government. And so he wanted to be sure that the Hebrews wouldn't have the manpower to build an army against him. So he has all the boys killed because only the boys in those days could grow up to be soldiers. So if you're a Hebrew woman and you became expectant with a child, you probably hoped and prayed that you'd have a baby girl, that you wouldn't have to face this, this horrible horrible uh, fate for your child, for your son. However, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, we have the story that tells us that among the Hebrew midwife community, there was a godly conspiracy against the law. Listen to verses 15 to 17, Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of you, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you, uh, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. I, I, I read that and I thought, oh, how redundant is that? You're going to be a midwife and you're going to help this woman give birth. And, and the king has to tell you to pay attention to what's going on. All right. All right. All right, Pharaoh, we got it. Observe what's going on here. Observe them as they deliver. And if the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. These midwives, you know, said, we can't allow this to happen. This is wrong. So they stood against the king's command. Now listen very closely to what I'm about to say, Christian. They disobeyed the king's command. They stood up against Pharaoh, not because they didn't like the rule, not because they didn't like the law. That's not what it was about. That's all about feelings. How do I feel about this? It wasn't about how they felt. They stood against the king's command because it commanded them to commit murder. It commanded them to go against the will of God. And so they said, we cannot do this. So we learn very quickly, maybe sometimes we've, we have read this story, have been told this story, and we think that Moses might have been the only baby boy who survived, but he was not. That says they let the boys live. But Moses was set apart by God in a special way. Well, Pharaoh, somehow, somebody's ratting on the midwives. Somebody gets the word back to Pharaoh. You know, they have leaks. And uh, it gets back to Pharaoh that they're letting the baby boys live in total rebellion to what he said. So he calls these midwives on the carpet. Verse 18, king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they, the Hebrew women, are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them. Well, you know what's happened in Pharaoh. 
Unlike the Egyptian women, when, they, when a Hebrew woman realizes it's time for the baby to come, it's time for the baby to come. And by the time the word gets back to us, they've already delivered the baby and, and hidden the baby, you know, and, and they beat us to the punch every single time. It's incredible, they told him. It's amazing. So by faith, God rewards their obedience to him. Apparently, these, these midwives were either single women or they were married but childless. And it says that, that God rewarded them in verse 20. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied. The nation, the Hebrew people, continued to grow and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he, God, gave them families. They've been rewarded for obeying God. Now they have their own children at home. So apparently there are no more midwives amongst the Hebrews and none that Pharaoh could trust, certainly. So verse 22, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, all of the Egyptians, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live into the Nile. The Nile, not only was it their river that gave them life in so many different ways, it was also very sacred to the Egyptians. And the Nile, you throw a baby into the, into the river, it's going to die rather quickly. It's either going to drown or the crocodiles that inhabit the Nile are going to get to it. They're going to die. You throw them all into the Nile, but let every daughter live. He gave this command. Again, kill to all the people, kill the Hebrew baby boys. And we have a word for that uh, when that happens. You remember, you, those of you can remember 1994, can remember what happened in the nation of Rwanda. Maybe you've seen the movie Hotel Rwanda about the genocide that took place. A hundred million people were killed in just a matter of a few months. I got to sit and listen. Gail and I got to sit and listen last week to a pastor from Rwanda who survived that. And what's happened in that country since then has been absolutely nothing but miraculous, and it's because of the gospel presence in their country. But genocide, wiping out all the, all the boys, uh, and, and that's the culture in which God's people lived at that time. Is that a difficult place to live, do you think, for God's people? Absolutely. Think about it for a moment. If all the Hebrew baby boys are killed by this genocide, eventually, what's the result? It will end them as a people. If there are no more baby boys, it will end them as the old people will die out, the women will be childless, and it will end them as a people. If there's no more people called the Hebrews, then there are no more descendants of Abraham. If there are no more descendants of Abraham, then that promise that God made to Abraham that we've looked at for several weeks in this chapter it won't come true, and if that promise doesn't come true, then Jesus won't be born. And if Jesus is never born, there's no hope for any of us for salvation. Do you see how important this was and what these midwives did and, and how God preserved these Hebrews and, and their race? I think this morning, I think we should be thankful for the midwives. Be grateful for them, for their godly, faithful courage and disobeying this law. Well, there's this couple amongst the Hebrews, this husband and wife named Amram and Jochebed. 
and to them was born a son. And it says in, in, in Hebrews 11 that the son was uh, beautiful. And it says that in Exodus chapter 2, that he was beautiful. And so when they saw that he was beautiful, they decided to hide him. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, you know, well, even not so attractive babies are beautiful to their mothers, aren't they? You know, we have the expression, a mother, he's got a face only a mother could love. You know, uh, some of you are here. And, and so, some of you, yeah, I heard that my whole life. Um, and and, and the, you have the, these babies, and, and I wondered about that, about beautiful. And have you ever noticed, by the way, that all babies look like Winston Churchill? Have you heard that before? Um, there's even, if you go to Yahoo Answers, which is a thing on Yahoo, you ask a question and people answer it. There's a question on Yahoo Answers. Why do all newborn babies look like Winston Churchill? And I don't know the answer to that. But we can probably take the phrase, he was beautiful, to mean that she knew somehow he was destined by God to be, be born for something amazing. And so by faith, Jacobed, Moses' mother, determined to protect him from being killed. Well, no doubt many Hebrew mothers somehow got caught with baby boys and lost them to an inhumane law, but not Jacobed. And it's her faith that is spoken of here first in Hebrews 11.23. It's not the faith of Moses yet, because he's not even born or he's a baby. So it's not his, it's the faith of the midwives and his parents. And as we've seen in the summer series, the normal result of faith. If your faith is real, and it, what happens with faith? It produces some kind of action in our lives. What, was, what were the results of their faith, these parents? Well, we were told that they hid Moses. They kept him in the house and hid him until he was three months old. And about when he was three months old, Jacobed, knowing that Pharaoh's daughter came to this particular spot on the Nile River to bathe, took a huge risk. She crafted an ark made from reeds and reeds and and uh, and made it watertight with pitch so that it would float. And she placed the baby in that. It's interesting. The Bible calls it an ark. Uh, in that in that uh, basket there, if you will, put him in there. Placed it in the water where it would float near the princess's favorite spot. She was counting. Apparently, she'd observed this over and over. The princess coming down to the river and counting on the princess having this natural female compassion for a crying baby. She also did something else. Moses had an older sister named Miriam. Don't know exactly how old she was, but she was old enough to know what her mom was saying to her. And mom said, Miriam wants you to go and hang out close by where that happens. And when you see her take the baby, she's going to want to take care of this baby, but she's going to need someone to nurse the baby. And I want you to step forward and say, I know a Hebrew nurse who can take care of this baby for you. So Miriam was there to do just that, to say, I have a, I can recommend the nurse for you. And she recommended her mother, who then kept her son until he was weaned, which might have been up to six years old. So he goes back to his mother, Jacobed. They hid him. They didn't fear the edict. It would have been normal and natural to fear hiding their son, and then you have to ask the question. We talked about taking risks. What mother would take her three-year-old child, put him on a raft, and set him afloat? Let's just say in, on the sound down the street. Just push him out, let him go. You know, if we saw, if you or I were out on the, on the sound today, and we saw somebody do that, push a baby out on a raft, and just turn around and walk away, we, we'd call 
the police. We called the fire department. We called somebody to come and rescue that baby. What if she was found out? What would be her fate if the government knew that she defied the king's order? What would happen to her? But faith evidently overruled their fear. They didn't fear the edict. And then they didn't do this alone. There was the entire Hebrew community banded together to protect their sons. There were more than just Moses who was protected. It's a great example for us today as Christians to know that our ability to live by faith is strengthened when we're connected by faith with the community of the church. That's where our faith grows stronger, is when we're connected with the community of the church. Now, the best way to be connected here at Nags Head Church, for those of you who are are regular attenders or maybe, maybe local folks, the best way to be connected here is by being in a small group that meets sometime during the week and a group of small 10 or 12 folks that gets together and, and, and builds relationships and studies the word together and prays together. And you may have to rearrange your schedule to be in a small group because your small group may say, well, we're going to meet on Tuesday night at such and such a time. And you may think, well, that's when my very favorite TV program comes on. You know, you may have to rearrange your schedule. You may have to begin to record that, that TV show so that you can see, uh, see it later. But, uh, but being in a connection group, and some people say, well, I, I can't be in a group. I just don't have the time. I want you to do something for me right now. I just want you to look up from wherever you are, and the best you can, look around this room and just kind of pan the, the folks that are in this room. Just do that right now. Look around this room. I want to tell you something about everybody in this room. I know something about everyone in this room. And what I know is this. We, every single one of us, all have the exact amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days a week. Do we not? Right? We all have the same amount of time. So when someone says, I don't have the time, but other people seem to have the time, it's not an issue of time. What is it? It's an issue of priorities. It's an issue of maybe moving things around so I can make it happen in my life. What what if I I can't find a group that works for me? Well, then I would say keep looking. We've got a bunch of groups. Keep checking them out. Keep looking. Find a group. Uh, Start a new group if that's what you need to do. Now, you can't say I'm going to start a new group and it's going to be three of us there, me, myself, and I. That's not a small group, right? You're not connecting with anybody. Start a new group. Use your home to host a group. What do I need to do that? You need a couple things. You need to be able to show a video, and you need to have a place for people to sit. So whether it's around your kitchen table, if you have one of those, or, or in your living room, there you can host a group. Now, and I also know people about connecting with the community of the church. I've, I've seen this happen too often as a pastor, that folks that once served in a ministry team, and then for whatever reason, they stop serving. And usually their stopping is not all of a sudden. It's usually a gradual disappearance. And over and over and over again, my observation has been this. Eventually, the faith those folks once joyously embraced becomes a thing of the past. 
The need for community, however, still exists in their lives. And so they're going to fill that need for community somewhere else. Something interesting I've learned the last couple of years. I've just said, I'm going to do this and just kind of learn some things and observe culture a little bit. But I often will go eat lunch. And one of my favorite places is right across the road at Mulligan's. And I'll go in there. And there's a group of guys I often eat with. And they're usually there gathered. And, and we'll sit and chat and talk and so forth. But sometimes I go in there and nobody's there that I know. So I'm going to eat by myself. But I don't want to eat by myself because I have this desire in me to be in community. I don't want to sit there by myself, you know. It's no fun to do that. I want to be with somebody else. So I know one place where I can go where not only am I going to get good service, but I'm also going to be around other people. And that is I'll go and eat my lunch in the bar. And there's always people in the bar eating lunch. Well, some of them are doing other things too, but there's always people in the bar. And what I've discovered is this, some of the times I go in there and I sit down in the bar and just so you don't worry, I either order a water or an unsweet tea, nothing stronger than that. But one thing I've, I've noticed eating my lunches over there is this, very, very often the same people are there every day. Same two or three or four people in the same seats every day. Do you know why that is? Is it because whatever they have there is better than anywhere else? Probably not. You know what's there? Community. Remember, I didn't used to watch the show. It wasn't one of my shows I watched, but the show Friends. Is that the one? Is that the one, Friends? Maybe it wasn't Friends. What's the one where they went in the bar and everybody knows your name? Cheers. Yeah. You go in there and everybody, what is that about? Everybody knows your name. That is about community. And everybody desires community. For the Christian, our place of community is in the church and with the people of God. So they didn't do this alone, what happened here. Now, if, let me say, if you, um, we're going to be here real soon starting a new church-wide connection group series. Starts next month that all of our groups are going to do called 40 Days in the Word. We're going to take six weeks to look at the Bible and how we study it, how we learn it, how we memorize it, how we apply it, how we interpret it, and so forth. And uh, we want you to be involved in that. Ramon's going to be in the lobby after we're done. He's going to be right over here in the lobby, and he would love to talk with you if you want to find out how to get in on a group, how to host a group in your home, or maybe how to lead a group. But the greatest thing that you can do as a Christian to make the best choices in your life is to surround yourself with true Christ followers who will surround you with love and with prayer and encouragement and accountability. That's the greatest thing you can do for making choices. So let's get back to Moses. When Moses is weaned, his mom, Jochebed, does something that had to be gut-wrenching. She had promised Pharaoh's daughter, after he's weaned, I'll give him back to you. And so she kept her word. She gave her son back to Pharaoh's daughter. And that just tells me, Christian, one of the things about, about life is sometimes the best choices are often the hardest choices to make. So Moses leaves his mother to live in the palace, and the princess gives him a name. I don't, he probably had a, a name before. Maybe the princess named him when she gave him back to, um, to Jacobed to nurse, but his name was Moses, which was not a Hebrew name. It was an Egyptian name. The word Mo it was ancient Egyptian for water, and so the name Moses means brought out of the water because she rescued him from the river. That was his name. He grew up in, in the royal palace. 
He had the best of everything. He had the best schools, the best food, the best clothes, the best instructions, the best security. He had the best of everything in life. But eventually, when he became a man sometime, he learned that he was not Hebrew, but, or not Egyptian, but he was actually Hebrew. And I can imagine that in his mind and in his heart, that brought a tremendous crisis, especially as he watched the Hebrews. Again, he's living in the palace. He's the adopted grandson of Pharaoh. And he sees the Hebrews who are in, who are in servitude to his, his grandpa, essentially. And he sees the struggles they had endured in, in, that they were enduring at the hands of the Egyptians. And he had to make a choice in his heart. It was bothering him. Do I take advantage of my status as the son of the princess? Or do I accept who I am as a Hebrew? So for Moses, there was a choice he had to make. And it was a choice of what in the world, what am I going to live for? What matters most in life? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11 again. Let me read verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. See the exchange he he made? He chose suffering over pleasure. Verse 26, for he considered the reproach because of the Messiah. And again, let me just interject here. This is about Christ. The reproach that he would receive having left, what what kind of a dummy is Moses that he would do that, people thought. The reproach that he would receive because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward. Moses made the best choice. We know that now. We know the story. He made the best choice. God then was able to take him and mold him into the leader needed to take his people, take God's people, out of slavery into the promised land. And it's because he refused to be who he was not. I'm not really an Egyptian prince. I'm a Hebrew. I was born into slavery. In God's timing, he discovered his true heritage as a Hebrew, and he accepted the suffering and the reproach it would bring. What's amazing to me, you think about this, Moses did not really meet God until 40 years later when he was on Mount Sinai and God spoke to him from the burning bush. You know that story? Well, who do I say has sent me? And God said, I am that I am. God revealed his name Yahweh to him. He didn't know who God was. He grew up in a pagan home. He didn't know God until he was 40 years old, until until after he was 40, until he was about almost 80 is when he finally knew God. Yet the Bible says he made this choice to identify with his Hebrew heritage rather than the Egyptians, and it says he did this by faith. I find that an incredible, incredible thing. Faith, then, what does it do? Faith allows me to see past the present to the eternal. Allows me to see past the present to the eternal. His attention, Hebrews says, Moses' attention, he was able to do this because his attention was not on the past. His attention was on the reward. Now listen, we live this life that in the scheme of things is short, don't we? Whether we live to be 70 or 80 or 90 years old, uh, Gladys Beadling 
her husband was hospitalized the other day, and I went to see her and, and, uh, and her husband, Bill. Bill's 98. Gladys is a member of our church. By the way, pray for Bill. Got to witness to him. He's not yet a believer. We got to witness to him. But Gladys is the oldest partner in our church. Gladys will be, her birthday, by the way, is Wednesday. She'll be 96. That's a long, long, old you know, time. Well, it is, is it not? I mean, I think about it. She's almost old enough to be my grandmother. Wow. But in the scheme of things, 96 is really, really, really short when we compare it to eternity, is it not? Our natural tendency is to look at everything with our physical eyes, which can only see what's before me at the moment. But there's an eternity ahead, and for Christians in that eternity, there will be, the Bible tells us, reward for our faithfulness to Christ. So what we're living right now, these 24-hour days and seven-day weeks and 365-day years and so forth until the day that we die, in the scheme of things, how many NASCAR fans are here today? Just be honest and admit it. Don't be ashamed, all right? You have no shame. All right, now, the NASCAR fans, for those of you who understand that whole concept, what we're doing right here in this life from the time that we're born until the time we die is a pit stop. That's really what it is. And every now and then we get to change our wheels, you know, change our tires, and we keep on going, but it's just a pit stop compared to eternity. We're just passing through here. Our faith will make the difference in how we handle present choices and future reward from Christ. The writer of Hebrews, after concluding this great chapter, begins next with these words. By the way, let me stop and do something real quickly. Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Bible open to Hebrews 11, you can look at chapter 12. And it starts off with these words. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let me, let me just kind of tell you what that means. Because sometimes I've heard there's been some confusion about that and what that means. Some people look at that and say, up in heaven, there's this great cloud of witnesses, people watching us live our lives. Grandma and grandpa are watching me live my life right now. And I say, I hope to God not. What kind of heaven would that be to watch us live our lives right here? To go through the things, that's not what it means. How do you know that? Because the very first word in chapter 12, verse 1, is the word, therefore. And when you see therefore, you Bible students know, when I see the word therefore, it means I need to go backwards and see what it's there for. Who is, who are this, who makes up this large cloud of witnesses? What's these people in Hebrews chapter 11 that he's just written about? All these folks in chapter 11 are witnesses of faith, are they not? And he says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, all these people who lived in ancient times, He says, then let us lay aside every weight in the sin that it so easily ensnares us because they were people just like us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us as they did. And then verse 2 is what I want to hit on. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. So, I can't keep looking with physical eyes at just what's before me. I need to begin to look at Christ. I need to begin to look with the eyes of faith at eternity. Then my faith may require me to take a courageous step. If you're a person of faith, it's going to call you out to be courageous at some time in your life. When Moses learned who he was, he chose suffering over the world's riches. 
And when Christians choose anything in our lives other than Christ, we put him aside and we say, I'm going to choose this of the world, we're making a bad choice. It boils down to you and I coming to a place in our lives. I think we come to these places many times in our lives, by the way. When we either reject the world or we reject the Lord, we've got to make the choice. Jesus said, hey, here's the deal. You can't serve both. Can't have, can't have the best of both worlds. You either choose me to be your Lord or you're rejecting me to be your Lord. So let me apply this for us. When a person accepts Christ as Savior, he or she is born again into Christ's family. And that's a forever family, isn't it? I mean, that goes on and on forever. And in it, in that family, is intended to be our identity in the world. Moses' family were the Hebrews. Our family are the brothers and sisters who belong to Christ all around this world, and in that family is where our identity is supposed to lie. It's how God wants us to be known. It's a life, Christian, if we live it. It's a life of bearing a cross, of being reviled by the world because our identity is in Jesus. They're going to treat, don't be surprised if the world doesn't treat you just like it treated Jesus if you live for him. So it's not just an hour on Sunday morning. It's a life. Jesus predicted this for his followers in John 16, 33. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I've conquered the world. In that verse, there's a promise. There's a warning, and at the same time, there is a reason to rejoice at how it all ends for us. He said, be of good cheer. I've conquered the world. I've won, and so have you with me. So let's wrap this up. How does that faith result in works? This faith the midwives had, faith that Moses' mom and dad had, faith that Moses had when he became an adult, how does that result in works? And here's the point. Heroic faith will stand against hostility. You see that over and over in the story. And what that tells me is this. Being a Christian does not... Being a Christian does not remove tough choices from your life. If you got saved and you thought, I don't have any hard choices to make the rest of my life. It's easy peasy from here on. It's down, you know, downhill. I'm just sliding on ice. It's easy to go. Uh, you're, you're going to be so disappointed. But being a Christian means our faith can lead us to make the best choices because of faith. Moses, when he decided, sorry, mom, talking to the princess, I, I can no longer live in the palace. I'm not an Egyptian. I got that figured out. I have to leave behind all the riches, all the inheritance, all the power, all the status, all the respect that's had from, been given to me by your adoption, which I thank you for very much for raising me up the way you have and doing the very best that you could have done. But I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. I've got to go and be with the Hebrew people. That was a very politically incorrect decision to make, was it not? I'm sure everybody in the palace sat in down and said, you can't do that. We've groomed you for leadership. We've trained you and we've fed you and, and you've had the best. You can't just walk away from it. When Moses made his intentions known to Pharaoh's household, 
that he was going to leave them to join his brothers and sisters, then God began to mold him into the one he would use to speak up and stand against the injustice of their slavery. He would not be silent after meeting up with God years later. He would go back down from the mountain and back into Egypt and say to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. But he had to reject the one to accept the other. As Christians, you and I are going to be challenged by the world. That's, I think that's a greater reality now, at least in this country, than we've ever experienced. You're going to be challenged by the world to speak out against injustices in this world and proclaim the freedom only the gospel of Christ can bring. Now, listen to me very carefully. For the most part, this world is ignorant of Christ and ignorant of his love. And so that ignorance causes them to act out in ways that oppose him, doesn't it? For the most part, they know no better. And when we retreat from the world, rather than standing up for what's right, Rather than opposing what's wrong, we're not sending to them a very clear message at all. When we go and hide in our holy huddles. But let me also say this. When we stand for what's right, they do not need to hear hatred from us. That's not what they need. They need the love. They need the gospel that only Jesus has. They don't need to... And hatred is all over the place, but they don't need hatred. For example, you may say, well, I don't hate anybody, but yet you post stuff on Facebook that shows that you do. They don't need hatred from us. They need the gospel. That's what, deliver that's what delivered you and me from who we were, isn't it? Sometimes we forget that grace that saved us. They need the love of Christ, and it's the church. It's the people of God who has to choose to deliver it. Listen, as if it matters. Does it? It matters for eternity. The midwives stood against Pharaoh's decree. God bless the midwives. They stood against Pharaoh's decree to murder baby boys. Moses rejected his identity as the prince of Egypt to identify as a slave. So let me ask you a question, a couple questions this morning as I close. How are you known by those around you? Do they know you as a Christian? Do they know you as somebody who lives for God? Do they know you as somebody who loves them, even though you may differ from them and with them? Do they know you as somebody who cares? Are you ready, Christian, for God to call you, if he does today, to take a stand against injustice that's invalidated or that's, uh, that's validated by Scripture, things that the Bible clearly says? That's wrong. Or will you just be silent and hope somebody else does it? I'm glad Moses didn't decide somebody else can do this. But he said, this is what I have to do. Aren't you? Let's pray. What a great story. 
how this baby boy was saved, his life was saved by, by his parents, how these midwives stood up against Pharaoh and how his mother, what a deep, deep love she had for him. And God, you had a plan for his life. And though it took a long time for him to know that plan, it happened in your time when he was ready. And when you were ready for Pharaoh to let your people go. We appreciate Moses' story, Lord. Great man. But he was a man just like the rest of us. He had his own frailties and his own faults. He wasn't perfect by any stretch. But yet, by faith, he got to do some amazing things. And I think today you're telling us the same thing to each one of us. Hey, you know what? You can have the exact same faith that Moses did. Because I want to do some amazing things in and through you. Help us to be open to that today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others. Reach the world. 